Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We have made it to Mark 14. Mark's 14th chapter in the Gospel of Mark. We'll be looking specifically at verses 1 through 11 today. The title is The Beginning of Christ's Passion. And that should make a little bit more sense after I read the text and give you some introductory thoughts. The beginning of Christ's passion. Mark chapter 14, verse 1. Mark writes, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of nard, pure nard. She broke the vial and poured it over his head. But... Some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She's done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body before the burial. Truly I say to you, whenever, wherever the gospel is preached... In the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Most of you, most people have heard the phrase, the passion of Christ, especially since 2004. It was in 2004 when Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, was released, and the phrase went mainstream in culture. But the phrase actually is common in Christian tradition and goes all the way back to the fourth century. It's attached to a Latin word, passionis, which means to suffer or suffering, So when we think passion today, we can think of someone energized. That's not what the original Latin phrase meant. It meant suffer. So the passion of the Christ is actually the suffering or the sufferings of Christ. The phrase meant to cover his betrayal, his arrest, his trials, his suffering, his execution by crucifixion. So as we come to Mark's 14th chapter, we begin to study Mark's opening of the narrative of the passion 
of Christ, the sufferings of Christ. We are two and a half chapters from the end of this book. We've reached the summit push. This all comprises one main story and narrative that Mark has been pushing for in all the previous chapters. Beginning in chapter 14, the account of the most important events in the history of the world are unfolded to us on these pages. And just to give you a little insight and head start, my, my guess from outlining and diagramming and studying the passage, uh, I've looked all the way through the end of the book, and I think, although I don't want to be held accountable to this, I think, I think, maybe that was a sign, I think it's going to take 12 sermons, 12 studies to finish Mark. That's about three months, put us finishing around September or so. I'm convinced that these next dozen studies should grip us in our church like nothing else ever has that we've studied together. Mark 14 is the longest chapter in Mark. It is the most dense. It chronicles the abandonment of Jesus. Next week, we'll be looking, as as, uh, Adam told you, at the, the beginning of the Lord's Supper, the communion exercise. And when we do that, we decided it would be the right time for us to receive communion and and celebrate that together if we're going to study the very beginning. So we'll do that together next week. But after that, if you look down at verse uh, 32, from verse 32 on, things deteriorate very quickly. Defection happens. Rejection happens. Jesus will be found alone, forsaken, tortured, and eventually murdered, all beginning in verse 32. Now, one of the things we've talked about and studied and even laughed a little bit about as we've studied the Gospel of Mark are these literary devices that scholars call Markan what? Sandwiches, which sounds like such a funny phrase, but it is actually a scholarly term. In a Mark and Sandwich is what Mark does over and over where he takes either one story, begins the story, ends the story, but in the middle of the story, he inserts another story that both the beginning and the ending point back to for its main point. Other times, he does parallel events or, or parallel people, as is in this case, and begins and ends with those parallel people. And in the beginning, in the middle, he puts a story or an account that is the highlight and contrast between those outside pieces of bread, if we can say that. Today we find an obvious one of those. In the first piece of this Mark and Sandwich, it's with the chief priests in verses 1 and 2. They're plotting to kill Jesus, Jesus, and the focus is on them, what they're doing. The last piece is in verses 10 and 11, with Judas leaving to meet these same high priests to plot the death of his friend, at least we would think so, and Lord. In the middle of these two interactions with the chief priests, we have the story of a woman anointing Jesus with lavish sacrifice and a lavish devotion. So if you want to see the sandwich, it's treachery, loyalty, Treachery. 
The bookends are treachery. In the middle, we find loyalty. And even in the middle, we find a disloyalty among the disciples that we need to note. The prophet Isaiah has famously written, and you know it very well, in the chapter that we know as the suffering servant, the end of chapter 52 of Isaiah, into all of chapter 53. In Isaiah 53, 4, Isaiah writes, Surely our griefs he himself bore. This is amazing. Isaiah is being given a, a vision and a prophecy of the sacrifice of Christ in which he is allowed to go beyond it, look back, understand what happened, and the theological inferences because of it. Surely our griefs he himself bore, speaking in the past tense. Our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him, this is the Savior, the Lord Jesus, stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity, the sin of us all to fall on him. And then verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. In this passage, we see the Lamb of God begun to be led to his slaughter. In this opening section of the Passion narrative, these first 11 verses of Mark 14, Mark shows us some of the most important players in the drama and trauma of the Passion narrative. We're going to break it down as we do. Even though there's three parts of the sandwich, we're actually going to discover four responses for the suffering servant Isaiah prophesied about. We're going to break it down and look at four divergent. They're very different, even though three of them are pretty similar. Four divergent responses to the servant about to suffer. This is all set up for what's coming, beginning in verse 32. Four divergent responses to the servant about to suffer. The first is in verses 1 and 2. The first response is murderous rejection. Murderous rejection. Verse 1. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. As we've talked about over the past couple of chapters, Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem, having done most of his ministry in Galilee, 100 miles north, even though he did visit Jerusalem several times. He comes down the Jordan River Valley through the Decapolis, ends up in Jericho, heals blind Bartimaeus on his way up the hill, the 13 or so miles up to Jerusalem, and base camps in Bethany. Just 45 minutes or so, hour or so walk around the Mount of Olives to the Temple Mount. Verse 1 talks about the timing of Jesus in Jerusalem. And as we've said over and over, he came in the most busy week of the entire year. It was the Passover week when they would celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread and celebrate the Passover. Now, the Passover goes back to that epic event that we should know about from Exodus chapter 12, where there was, there was an interesting ritual established for the Jews and a, a miracle established for them to all look back to and remember. Exodus 12.5 records the stipulations for the Passover meal. An unblemished one-year-old lamb or goat 
that was sacrificed by family units and enjoyed in family units as a meal. By the time of Jesus, this was a ritual that took place annually in Jerusalem. In in, uh, Exodus chapter 12, we find out that you're supposed to, as a family, bring in this one-year lamb, which would have stayed with you for five days, which is a strange thing, as we've discussed before. It stayed five days, so the family would basically adopt it as a pet. They would have affection for this little lamb. They would love the little lamb. They would see the little lamb. The little lamb's hoofs would slide on the kitchen floor if there had been a hardwood floor then. They would have enjoyed the little lamb in their house. Then on Friday, the father, after five days, would bring the lamb, slice its throat. The family would watch it die, and then they would consume it in thanksgiving. The lamb was killed by the time of Jesus in the temple on the afternoon of the 14th of Nisan on the Jewish calendar. That's late March, early April. And eaten after sunset on the 15th of Nisan. It was done in family gatherings and in private houses according to Exodus 12 and Deuteronomy 16. The week-long feast that was around that time was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread or Bread Without Yeast. This was outlined also in Exodus 12 and in Deuteronomy 16. As the title suggests, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Jews would eat bread without yeast as a memorial to how the Israelites, when God said, I'm going to deliver you, were in such a hurry that they had not time to let the bread rise. That happened over the course of the week, climaxing and Passover on Friday. Mark talks about these two events and says they are two days away, basically from the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover itself. So when he says the Passover is two days away, he's indicating the dating of the crucifixion, which would be on the day before the Sabbath, Friday. According to chapter 15, verse 42, we know exactly when it happened. And that makes the conspiracy plan land on Wednesday of Passover week when you back up to two days. Look back to verse 1. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him, arrest him, pull him into their custody by secrecy, by stealth, and kill him. Very clear, murderous plot. But they had a problem, and we find out their problem in verse 2. For they were saying, but we can't do it this week. We can't do it during the festival. Why? Jesus had been on the Temple Mount all week. He was drawing large crowds. They were amazed at his teaching. They were liking him. He had popularity. And they were going to need to do something to turn the crowd against them. And that will come in the next chapter. This is the climax of what began up north in Galilee two and a half years earlier. Remember when we said back when we were studying chapter 3 that to remember that, and I know very few people did, but in, in Mark chapter 3 verse 6, the, Jesus is getting popular. He's performing miracles. He's healing. He's raising the dead. And um, the Pharisees and the scribes down in Jerusalem, 100 miles south from Galilee, We're getting jealous. 
People were coming back with accounts of this, this Nazarene who was doing these things. And they sent a delegation of Pharisees up to trap him and to plot against him. And this is how bad it got. Mark chapter 3, verse 6. Back to the third chapter of Mark. The Pharisees sent out and immediately began conspiring after he healed the paralytic and forgave his sins, conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. This plot to murder Jesus is two and a half, at least two and a half years old. It should be no surprise then when Jesus arrives at the temple during this week, the plot will continue. Mark eleven eighteen, 18, when he arrives in the temple, the chief priests and scribes heard this. They began seeking how to destroy him for they were afraid of him for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. They knew they would need to do something by secrecy. Mark chapter 12, verse 12, they were seeking to seize him and they feared the people for they understood that he spoke a parable against them. So they left him alone and went away. As I said, the Jewish leadership had a problem. They wanted to rid themselves of Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus. But their plan at this point was to do it next week after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Not during the festival is when they said. What they didn't understand was that Jesus is the Lamb of God who would be sacrificed on the day of Passover. They could not dislodge God's timing They feared the people. It said here the people would riot. They needed someone on the inside. And the story will pick up down in verse 10. They found a man on the inside. These leaders have not only rejected the true Messiah, taught against him, they've rebelled against him, they've plotted against him. They were planning to murder the Messiah. It's almost hard to conceive Murderous rejection was the first response we see to the servant who is about to suffer. The second is in verse 3, loving devotion. And this is the heart of the text. Loving devotion. This begins the middle part of the sandwich. While, or at the time, he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper... Reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a flask, of cost, very costly perfume of pure nard. She broke the vial and poured it over his head. As I said, verses 3 to 9 comprise the middle part of that Mark and sandwich, but they contain two responses. We have this woman, and then we have the disciples. Now, before we dive into the disciples, let's look carefully at this woman. Here is really just one main verse. Before we look at the details, though, I have to help you out for just a second. There are, there, there's a problem that we need to reconcile or a supposed contradiction here that we need to reconcile between what Mark and Matthew say and what John says. There are actually two problems, and we'll address them both very quickly. First, Mark tells us that this event, this anointing, happens in the home of Simon the leper, right? Uh, Mark informs his readers that it was a man who was Simon, named Simon, who used to be a leper. How do we know he used to be a leper? Because everyone's dining with him, and he wouldn't be dining with anyone if he was still a leper. So no doubt Jesus would have healed this man, we just don't have the account of it, but he was known to Mark's readers as Simon the leper. The challenge, though, 
is that John 12 tells us this happened in the home of Lazarus. Is this a contradiction in the Bible? Now, I want to just explain something before we get into the details. I think it's resolvable with no issues. But I, I want to confess to you that when we see supposed contradictions as, as Bible-believing evangelicals, our automatic reflex is simply this. This is not a contradiction. The problem is I don't understand. You understand what I'm saying? The, the, we, we assume that the Word of God contains no contradictions. And it doesn't here, and it's, this is a resolvable issue. Who is Lazarus in John 10? Well, he has two sisters, Mary and Martha. We also know that Lazarus had a problem a few months before this. He got sick, and then he died. And Jesus raised him from the dead. That caused quite a stir, so much so that we'll see uh, next, in the next few studies that the, the chief priests wanted to kill Lazarus too. So, is this in the home of Simon the leper or in the home of Lazarus? And the answer is yes. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were all siblings. We know that. The best way to understand this is they lived in the home of Simon, who is likely their father. There's no contradiction. They all lived in the same house. But there's another challenge here as well. And if you read John 12, it sticks out like a sore thumb. We find out here that um, Mark is recording something, this, this, this conspiracy on Wednesday, two days before the Passover. But John says it was six days before the Passover. How do we resolve that? Matthew says it was also that this, this uh, conspiracy is happening two days before the Passover as well. How, how do we reconcile John placing the event six days before? Well, very simply, I think that Mark and Matthew's language point to this being a flashback scene. They are reflecting back four days and inserting that scene here for contrast with the high priests. How do we know that? Look back at the text. While he was in Bethany, you see that? This is a marker that says this was a different time than what was happening when these high priests are plotting with Judas. So he hearkens back for four days and says this is, a, this is a significant difference in how this woman responds and how the disciples and Judas and the high priest are responding. Mark is inserting a scene between the two interactions of the high priest to draw a contrast. New Testament scholar Robert Thomas, who was one of my New Testament professors at the Master's Seminary, and I got to tell you, he was the hardest teacher I ever had in my life. I, I mean, brutally hard. He would give us quizzes every Tuesday, every Thursday in New Testament introduction. And these quizzes uh, I would study 10 hours for, and he would ask questions from 200 pages of reading from some of the footnotes. I'm not making that up. And we would study and study and study. And he graded on a four-point scale. Four was the highest you can get. I remember like getting 1.67 and being so excited. Like, I'm above one. This is good. He was the hardest teacher I've ever had. But a scholar like I've never noticed. 
never known. He has written a, a book called A Harmony of the Gospels with Stanley Guntry. I've, I've, I've mentioned this to you before. This is a book you really ought to own for the purpose of looking at the footnotes. Because where there are supposed discrepancies or contradictions in the Gospels, Thomas has done the best job of anyone I know from New Testament scholarship to resolve those. This is what he says about this supposed contradiction. John says six days before. Mark and Matthew say two days. He says, quote, The placement of John, six days before, is preferred because it's easier to construe the synoptics, that's Matthew and Mark, accounts as flashbacks than to interpret John's account as anticipation, as foreshadowing. The fourth gospel, John, apparently gives the event in its chronological sequence. Matthew and Mark, on the other hand, introduce it out of sequence, either to contrast the worship of Mary with the animosity of the high priest or with the chief priest or with the scribes, end quote. I think that's a really good way of looking at it. And even the language, while he was in Bethany, gives us the idea, the clear idea that he's shifting scenes for us. Again, the insertion of this event happened a few days before, four days before, to show the striking contrast between the conspirators and the devoted. Now, back to verse 3. It's interesting to evaluate the contrast of these two scenes from the perspective of religious cleanliness. Think about this. On the Temple Mount, which was supposed to be the most ceremonially and religiously clean place in Israel, Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount, you have chief priests conspiring to kill the Messiah. And yet in the house of a leper, you have true devotion and true worship. The most unclean place you can imagine, ceremonially so. Home of a former leper. Now we find out about this lady, this woman. There came a woman with an alabaster vial. The indication there came a woman, and when you match that up with with John's account, seems to indicate that this woman was probably not an invited guest. She just comes in while they're reclining, they're sitting, they're reclining at the table. Remember the tables there were usually in a a, a, a kind of a, a shape of a U, and they would recline one elbow on pillows. That's why their feet were in each other's face, as we'll see, they needed foot washing. And in comes this woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of nard, she breaks it, pours it over his head. I think it's interesting to match this up with John's account. Listen to John's details of this. John chapter 12, Therefore, six days before the Passover, there's that time signature, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. That was in the previous chapter. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then listen to this. But Mary, now we find out who this unnamed woman in Mark is. It's Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. Mary took a pound, literally about 12 ounces in the Roman count, a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed, we get more details here, the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled 
with the fragrance of the perfume. Nard was very concentrated. It was intended to be mixed with water. Back to Mark. Mark uses, in the Greek, it's called a genitive. He uses four genitives. That's the word of that describes a possessive relationship. But he uses them in strict staccato fashion to increase the the description of this, this perfume, this ointment, this oil, to make us know how valuable it is. Basically, it reads in the original, this woman brought a jar, a jar of ointment, a jar of nard, a jar of purity, a jar of extreme value. Further, it's inside an alabaster flask. This was a thin-necked container, probably made from Egyptian marble that was very expensive. It was small. Remember, this is only going to hold about 12 ounces. Carved into a long neck so that you could, you, you could control the, the pouring so that you could do one drip at a time and control so that a lot of this expensive perfume would not fall out, would not drain out, rather. However, Mary does not drop a few drops of her precious perfume. Instead, she breaks the valuable alabaster container and this aromic liquid is poured on Jesus' head and his feet. John comments that that smell filled the house. Can you imagine taking... 12 ounces of very concentrated perfume and dropping it in a very small house. About 12 ounces. Further, it was nard. Nard was extracted from a plant that only grows in India, meaning that it was an exported ointment. It was from a far place. It was very rare. It was very expensive. It was very valuable. How valuable was the ointment? Well, verse 5 tells us it was worth more than 300 denarii. Now, we know the value of a denarius, one denarii, from from, uh, Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 15, and it's equal to one day's wage. You work all day, you get one denarius. You have over 300, you have about a year's worth of salary that would pay for that one flask with that, that 12 ounces of pure nard. According to the value of this woman's gift of being a year's wages, we see the value. We're not told where this money came from. It's not hard to imagine it could have been her nest egg. It's also not hard to imagine it might have belonged to her and Lazarus and Martha. Her and Martha had some issues, and we'll talk about that at another time. She and Martha. One commentator proposes, quote, The nard was probably a family heirloom, in which, in which case it possessed a sentimental value in addition to its monetary value. Mark reports that she did not pour out the, the uh, uh, ointment but smashed the jar itself, which means the vessel could never be used again, thus symbolizing the totality of the gift. This nard was probably a paste that when heated up would become an oil and mixed with water. So when she smashed it, it didn't run all over. It was pasty. She could pick it up and... Apply it to the Lord. This woman, Mary's 
loving devotion is such a stark contrast to the surrounding conspirators and even to the disciples themselves. Not only that, we're going to find out from Jesus' own lips that what she's doing is way more theologically significant than you might imagine. What she does anticipates the very death that Jesus had been telling his followers was coming. The focus of her faith was not being in the right. That was the disciples as they were fighting. It was not abstracted truth. It was not even pronounced doctrine. It was the person of Jesus who captured her love, who captured her affection, who captured her attention. Loving devotion. We'll see more about her in just a moment. In the middle of the sandwich, we find another group of people whose response is misconstrued interpretation. And now we're back to our friends, the disciples. It's so easy to be hard on them. I I can't imagine I would have been any more clear thinking. Misconstrued interpretation. Verse 4. But some, notice it's plural, some, not just Judas, some were indignantly remarking to one another. This is a conversation amongst these men. Why has this perfume been... Wasted. What a word. And then you see their economic sensibilities. For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii. They knew the value of it. And the money given to the poor. (laughs) Look at the last phrase of verse 5. And they were scolding her. The use of the plural here, again, is important. We find out later that Judas was at the head of this opposition, head of this objection. However, he was not alone. Mary regards Jesus as worthy of her lavish sacrifice, but the disciples do not. They were scolding her. The Greek word for this this translated scolding here means so angry the nostrils flare. They were bent out of shape. Their voices were raised. Their nose were scrunched. Their eyes were squinted. They were scolding her, yelling at her that she had wasted ministry money on Jesus. Wow. They were angry. They believed she wasted a year's worth of wages on the Lord, and that money could have been used elsewhere, like feeding the poor. It was a waste to anoint Jesus. However, they had misguided values, which led them to misconstrued interpretation. They interpreted this totally wrong. I read commentators this week who said this was Mary anointing him as king since he was never anointed uh, anywhere else in the Gospels. That, that, that's, that's not what Jesus says happening, is happening here. This is a different kind of anointing. Jesus then interrupts their tongue lashing of Mary. And he rebukes not her. He rebukes them. Verse 6, Jesus said, let her alone. And then listen to this, why do you bother her? In other words, she's on mission and you're bothering her. They thought she was wasting 
resources, bothering their meal, Jesus understands something that she's doing and says, stop interrupting, stop bothering, stop deferring, stop deterring her. Verse 6, she has done a good deed to me, a good thing. What she's done has been excellent, good, exceptional, exemplary, a model. Jesus does let them know there, there is a place for caring for the poor, but it's not this time. Verse 7. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But, this is critical to, to the interpretation, you do not always have me. There's a time, there's a place for caring for the poor, but this is not the time, this is not the money, and this is not the place. Then we come to verse 8, and his words in verse 8 should have taken the air out of the room, rocked their worlds, made them stop in their tracks. She's done what she can. She, she has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Now we know what this anointing is. Keyword here is burial. If you and I were having lunch tomorrow and I said, listen, can we swing by the cemetery? I need to take care of some, some details for my burial in two days. Would that not cause a few questions? And yet, there seems to be none here. Match that with the end of verse 7 where Jesus says he will not always be with them. This is clearly a reference to Mary understanding Jesus was about to die. She's preparing his body to be buried. I think she understood that Jesus was going to die an ignoble death. She understood that his body could have been thrown to the dogs or thrown in a, in a common grave. She didn't know what we know about Joseph of Arimathea. But she knew he was going to die. Jesus actually interprets her action and says, she is preparing my body for burial. Ceremonially, but also with, with this expensive, valuable, sweet-smelling nard. And listen, just to be frank with you, that was used for burial to try to reduce the stench as a body decayed. This is a graphic display of loving devotion. Jesus understands what she's doing. Jesus affirms what she's doing. Jesus exonerates what she's doing. Verse 9, Truly I say to you, Jesus says to the disciples, Wherever the gospel is preached, this is happening right now at Mission Road Bible Church in this moment, this prophecy. Wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman, what Mary has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. We are looking at her loving devotion. This is incredible. Matthew Henry writes, the honor of Christ is principally intended in the gospel, yet... The honor of his saints and servants is not altogether overlooked, end quote. Jesus says, the whole world and the whole church canonized in Scripture will remember 
what this woman has done for me. By the way, a little uh, forecast. Jesus would be taken down from the cross in the mid-afternoon on the day before the Sabbath. They could not touch a dead body on the Sabbath. He had to be hastily buried. He was not anointed in the typical Jewish fashion. So you find, it's going to get confusing, two other Marys come back early on Sunday morning to do what? To anoint his body. She's way ahead in this moment, Mary is. This Mary. There are three main Marys, Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of Jesus, and Mary, brother of, sister of Lazarus. That's another study for another time. It can be confusing. So when you see Mary, ask yourself, which one is this? Listen, the fact that Mark recorded this scene and the reality that we are studying it today is not only a fulfillment of Jesus' promise, it is a glorifying of this woman for the gospel's reputation. Jesus has predicted his death three times in the book of Mark to a group of disciples. These ladies may have been there for one or more of these, Mark 8, 31, Mark 9.31, Mark 10.33, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem to die at the hands of the Jewish leadership. I'll rise from the grave. Apparently Mary heard. Apparently Mary believed. The disciples were just wondering, after the stones fall off this, this temple, when will you build it back and we can rule and reign with you? I saw that in chapter 13. Some people think that the Bible really demeans and looks down on women. Can I just... Suggest the opposite. We'll see in the resurrection. The women were the first to come there. We see here, it's a woman in the presence of disciples who should have known better, who gets it theologically, who responds appropriately, who Jesus honors. The Bible esteems women very, very dignified way. None of the men came to the conclusion that Mary did. She was theologically accurate. I think we find special devotion and motivation in Mary's devotion. The critical lesson to learn here that Jesus tells us to remember is that she understood theologically. She was devoted to the Lord. Her priority of Jesus, prioritizing of Jesus was higher than everything she had that was valuable to her in this life. There was nothing, even her nest egg, even this pure alabaster container with nard in it was something that she would hold back from one who was about to die. The disciples saw this as a waste. No care or affair in this world should dislodge him from preeminence in the Christian's heart. And then we come to the fourth devious betrayal. We saw Mary, we saw the chief priest, we saw Mary. We saw the disciples, and now we come to this fourth divergent response to the servant about to suffer, devious betrayal. It's hard to read. Then Judas Iscariot. And Mark underlines he was one of the twelve. Went off 
We're back on Wednesday now. We've shifted from Saturday before to Wednesday. Went off to the chief priests for the purpose of betraying him to them. They were glad. They were glad when they heard this. Promised to give him, Judas, money. And so Judas begins seeking how to betray him at the opportune, at an opportune time. As I've said, we'll have, we'll have much more to say about Judas in the coming weeks. Suffice it to say, Mark identifies him as an insider, one of the twelve, gives his full name, Judas, Judas Iscariot. And don't you find it interesting that Mark names Judas and doesn't name Mary? And Mary's the one to be remembered? It's her devotion and Judas's treachery we need to remember. First part of the sandwich begins with the chief priests and the last part here ends with them. Some important observations about this, these two verses in this scene. It is Judas who goes to the high priest. They don't come to him. This is an act of deliberate, traitorous treachery and betrayal They didn't go say, who can we seek out? He sought out them. Verse 11 tells us that upon hearing that Judas would be their mole, they were glad, joyful. These Sadducees and Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the Herodians and the scribes, the chief priests and even the high priest himself, We're all filled with rage all week long at Jesus. And now suddenly they become giddy and happy. They have a mole. They have an insider. They have an informant. And now they can fulfill their plan. Also, verse 11 indicates that Judas was no passive victim in this conspiracy. He sought it out. And this was no momentary decision. For the next 48 hours, he is looking for the perfect time to betray Jesus, to trap him. So along with the Jewish leaders who at the beginning of this text said they were looking for a time in secret that wouldn't cause a riot, Judas would begin looking for a time, and this is according to Luke 22.6 also, Uh, where it would be probably in the middle of the night and probably away from the Temple Mount where there there would be not a lot of people around. So he picks a time of faithfulness. He knew that the Lord's habit was to go into a garden, a grove of olive trees to pray He knew about the time of night he did so. And that would be the choice to make. It reminds me of Daniel. Remember Daniel's story? Daniel is, the men around him can't stand Daniel. They can't stand his integrity. So they want to trap him. They want to get him executed. So they create a law behind Daniel's back that says, if you pray to any God other than the king, then you are subject to capital punishment. They pass that law. Daniel knows about the law. He goes to pray three times a day, morning, noon, and night. 
He had done it for years. They had seen him. They did that to trap him. Instead of running from it, he goes straight to his porch to pray in public. They trap him by his own faithfulness. Judas will lay the same trap, and Jesus will willingly walk to that garden. We'll see that in two weeks. Abraham Caravilla comments, such an interesting sentence. He says, Judas gives up Jesus for money. This woman gives up money for Jesus. It's how Judas is remembered. It's how Mary is remembered. Just three simple takeaways. This is just getting us ready for the coming chapter. Three questions I'm asking myself. I would ask you, what is there in your heart that competes with Jesus as most valuable? What is there in your heart that competes with Jesus as most valuable? This woman, Mary, saw the lordship of Christ that defeated any priority or value she would have. A second question, can you identify the ways you might misconstrue your interpretation of Jesus, the word of God itself? Are there ways that your interpretation of God's word or Jesus himself might be misaligned, misconstrued, the disciples should have known better and they didn't? This could include raising certain favorite preferences or verses or doctrines above others, not remembering that God has given us a whole gospel and a complete canon, not an encyclopedia of proof texts. The disciples were all happy to rule and reign. They didn't like the part about Jesus having to die. And then lastly, and this is almost a restatement of the first one, but it's not by mistake. The last question I ask is, do we possess anything that we would not sacrifice for Christ's Christ, if need be. Do we possess anything that we would not sacrifice for Christ if need be? Mary sacrificed her her most valuable possession, a whole year, whatever you make in a year, think about that all being in your hand and sacrificing that in one moment for the cause of Christ. This is not about how much you give, it's about how much we value. And she is a forever example to all of us to assess our hearts and assess our Lord with the proper value system. Let me pray.